0: Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. I'm also the author of the multi-volume series published by HarperCollins called Master Mentors, Volume 1 and Volume 2 Out, Volume 3 Coming, where each year I release a book with the permission of 30 of my favorite guests and talk about a transformational insight they shared on the podcast, 30 mentors 30 insights 30 chapters love to have you pick up a copy of master mentors after five years in this seat we are now releasing this podcast twice weekly i think when i'm asked what is the key to a successful podcast i say well having great guests because although they come for the guest they stay for the host you also want to keep going just keep going 90 plus percent of all podcasts don't air episodes after the first dozen or such and after nearly 300 episodes. We are not just keeping going. We're now doubling down and releasing two every week on Tuesday and on Friday for now, 100 plus episodes a year. Our focus every week is to invest, to pour into you as a listener and viewer to make you a better leader. It might be a better marketing leader, a better operations leader, a better leader in your entrepreneurship or side hustle venture, a better leader as a parent, a spouse, a caregiver, a partner. And today we have an individual on that's going to address a topic that we've not actually spoken to before, and that is all about the employee experience. She is a revisiting guest. She's been on before for a previous best selling book. Her name is Tiffany Bova. You know her as the author of the best selling book. Growth IQ. She is now here to talk about her book, Releasing Today, The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. Her day hustle, if you will, is as the global growth and innovations evangelist at Salesforce, Tiffany Bova. Welcome to On Leadership.
1: Oh, Scott, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here on this day. There is no place I'd rather be.
0: Congratulations. Uh, this is soon to be your second, I think, best-selling book. Uh, no doubt you have poured into it like all authors do, lovingly, painstakingly. You know intimately that writing a book is about 10% of the process, and releasing it to the world and sustaining it is like 90%. So we're honored to take our spotlight and shine it onto your research and your expertise today. Before we start there, will you take a minute and reorient our listeners and viewers to the book we uh, interviewed you about recently called Growth IQ? This book became a best selling book as well. Talk a bit about Growth IQ and then why your second pivot was to the experience mindset.
1: Absolutely. The uh, first book, Growth IQ, was 10 Paths to Growth. And it came from a combination of my own experience as a leader for sales, marketing, and customer service uh, divisions of both startups and Fortune 500 companies, as well as a decade I spent at Gartner Group as a research fellow. Within those 10 paths, the very first path was customer experience. And I would often say, customers are your true north. They're the center of all the decisions that you make in your business. And I missed employee. I talked a little bit about it in that chapter, and I talked about it in a couple of other chapters, but I gave it, I did not give it its due. And so the experience mindset was my way almost to go back and create the 11th path that I missed in the first book. And it came from the conversations I had with people after Growth IQ had launched, that when we started talking about how do you do these things, people became so much more important. And so I spent two years uh, trying to uncover what are those aspects of the employee experience that have the greatest impact on customer experience. And the output of that is the new book, *The Experience Mindset*.
0: Tiffany, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about just that—the employee colleague experience. The, the buzzword the last, you know, three or four or five years has been customer experience, right? We see an explosion in the uh, onboarding and hiring of a. Of a customer experience officer, funds and processes and touch points and service focused on our customers. Do you think think companies, organizations can delicately balance both? Because we hear some thought leaders talk about, no, treat your employees well, they treat your customers well. Others talk about customers first, the rest will come. Do you think it's a realistic demand, mandate to say to the C-suite, both are equally as important as important.
1: That's a great way to frame it up, Scott. You know, at the end of the day, this is kind of the journey I went on. I was part of the team that made a prediction all the way back in 2008 that the chief marketing officer would spend more on technology than the chief information officer. And when we said it, Everyone thought we were crazy, but we weren't talking about it from a technology standpoint. We were really leaning into the idea that customer experience was going to be the next battleground as more and more companies invested in digital, social, online, as brands started to push their messages into different mediums. And that resulted in, as you just mentioned, chief customer officers um, being created as a new role, chief marketing officers sitting at the C-suite. We've spent a decade... Uh, really focusing, if not more than that, focusing on this customer, the power of doing well in customer experience. Now that's fast forward, right? Pandemic hits and all of the sudden, for the very first time, employee became the number one stakeholder in long-term growth uh, prospective, right? According to Edelman, and that was the first time that had happened in a decade. But now all of a sudden, employee became greatly important And you could see from the great resignation and everything that's happened since, that talent reskilling, finding and retaining good people is becoming more and more difficult. And that has everything to do with the ability for companies to be successful. So the answer is not an or. Is it customer first or employee first? It is an and play. So the whole concept is around balancing in a more intentional way the efforts you do for both employee and customer so both can be successful doing what they wanna do as your employee and as your customer. Tiffany,
0: I've spent my entire three decade career in the leadership development industry. So I arguably have some expertise on that. And I know nothing about AI or Six Sigma, but I know a few things about leadership and culture. And somewhat perhaps unconventionally, I don't believe that a leader's number one job is mission, vision, and values. They are important, certainly vision and systems, structures, and processes. We hear that a lot around aligning systems, and those are important things. I actually think that a leader's number one contribution is the recruitment and retention of quality people. I think most of us get the first half right, and then we abandon the second half about retention. Every day you hear about, continually, people that are still leaving organizations. They're usually quitting their jobs because of bad bosses or bad cultures. To what extent do you agree or even disagree that a leader's key contribution is not just the retention of staff, but like the recruitment of genius people that are smarter than you are, and you're confident and comfortable enough being surrounded by people who are noticeably more talented than you are, and then developing a culture where they choose to stay. It seems like it gets a lot of pablum But I'm not sure it's been, like, mandated that, you know, CMO, yes, you need lead gen, but you also need to make sure that your top 30 people are not responding to the seven LinkedIn overtures they're going to get this week. What do we do about that?
1: Well, listen, I I could say this is what I think, but the good news is we spent two years on three very comprehensive research projects. And what we found in that kind of lends itself to what you just said. One is executives absolutely understand the power of investing in people. They actually said to us in many conversations, of course employees are important. They're my most important stakeholder. I have to invest in them. But in the other side of their mouth, they would say, but then it's always customer first. It was three quarters of executives actually said that nobody in the organization owned employee experience. Now, let that sink in for a second. Now, it's not about a person owning it. It's a, no one is actually setting the sort of roadmap for how to be an effective and have employee and have a great career, if you will, and all the things you just said, right? Like, I need our people to be fantastic. I wanna be able to recruit them. The second thing we found was that although executives were capturing information about what people liked about their job or what they liked about what they did, you know, those surveys, that they were capturing it, but the majority of them were doing nothing with the data. So while executives may say employees are important to me, to my team, of course, their actions didn't always line up with that. And that's where I think we have really failed as leaders to make sure that we remember the keepers of our promise as a company, our vision, our values, all the things you rattled off, Scott, The keepers of those promises are your people. They are the ones that deliver on the promise you give at your earnings call, right, in front of your customers, all the things you do, they are the ones that do it. And so we, um, there is a big gap between what the executives think is happening and what employees actually know is happening.
0: Okay, Tiffany, get practical. First, I wanna have you speak to the leaders around the world, the millions of them that are watching and listening literally to this podcast. I want you to rattle off the things you think they should be thinking about and doing. And I'd like you to give me three or four things that company C-suite leaders specifically should be thinking about and doing. And then I want you to follow it up with who's doing it right and and what are some examples.
1: So I'll start with one of the uh, findings we had, which was the largest disconnect between the C-suite and employees when it came to the top challenges the company was facing around growth. The biggest disconnect was outdated technology. And so when we asked the C-suite, what do you think about the technology your people are using to do their job effectively? It was like 54% of C-suite believed, and this, by the way, is a global study across six regions. Uh, there were thousands of uh, surveys uh, filled out, as well as hundreds of one-on-one conversations with executives. We asked them, right? do they think it was effective and efficient the technology for employees to do their job. Only 32% of employees agreed with that statement. And the one that was really concerning was only 20% of customer-facing employees agreed. The technology they were using allowed them to collaborate easily and effectively do their job efficiently, make them be more productive. All the things we now talk about, right? How they become more resilient, all those buzzwords Uh, Now, technology is really the foundation to do that. So that was one that if it's, where do we have to focus first, is I don't think executives actually understand what technology their people are using to do the job. And a lot of that comes down to the C-suite doesn't always use that same technology to do their job. Right? They're not using the CRM system. They get a report on what's happening in the pipeline and the forecast and the business. They're not in the customer service application. They just see how many customers have churned, how many calls we're getting, what's the cost basis of the call center. So tech was one where there was huge opportunity. The second was broken processes. As you mentioned, Scott, right, the processes by which employees have to follow are too cumbersome, add too much friction, add too many steps. And what does that do? Increases the time it takes them to do their job. And since so many are focused on productivity and cost right now, we want people to be more efficient. And the third one was really around investing in the talent. So while you brought this up a couple times, employees are starving for career advancement. And it may be a lateral move, it may be in another division in the company, but invest in me as a person, teach me new skills, help me be a better uh, employee, but also help me love what I get to do. Look, the fastest way to get customers to love your company, your brand, is to get employees to love their job. So there's so many things to unpack there, but those are really the big three we found.
0: Who's doing it well? You research some companies, you write about them in your book, Are there one or two examples that you think other leaders should be studying that have this balance between customer experience and employee experience calibrated well?
1: Yeah, I'm going to give you an example about Salesforce. And, And how this research really started was I was standing on stage and said, I didn't think it was a coincidence that Salesforce is one of the best places to work in the world, according to other people. If it's not number one, it's in the top five. It's one of the most innovative companies in the world and it's the fastest growing enterprise software company. And once I said that, look, I'm not the first person to say it. Herb Kelleher has said it, Richard Branson said it, right? Happy employee, happy customer, greater growth rates. I mean, Scott, you said it. I mean, it's it's an obvious statement, but could I prove it? It's so, usually,
0: by the way, it's usually Richard Branson, Herb Kelleher, and Scott Miller that are usually quoted in unison. So thank you for so, codifying so, that. So, thank you.
1: So let me say now, and Scott Miller. So Thank I you. will add Thank you him. to the repertoire. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but if you uh, look at that and you say, "Look, we've got a hyper growth company such as Salesforce, who's innovating like crazy, right?" is a great place to work. We got very talented people. We have a pipeline of people who want to work here. Yet, yet, twenty years into our you know history, uh, we only stood up an employee experience team ten months ago. When the book was written it was maybe four months old at that time so even hyper growth companies just because you're growing quickly does not mean that you don't have some blind spots in your employee experience so even a great place to work can have room for improvement even a highly innovative company can have room for improvement and even a hyper growth revenue company has room for improvement so back to your question you know of who is doing it well we we did a study and looked at those companies that were doing well on both employee experience and customer experience. And we found those I think you would recognize, right? It was the Southwest, it was the Hilton Hotels, it was Lamborghini, it was um, Chewy, it was Ritz-Carlton. There were lots of great examples. What's difficult for many is to sustain that kind of balance between the two. Sometimes things will happen and you pivot back to employee or you pivot over to customer. And we lose sight of the connection between those two things. And that is where culture and leadership really play a part in keeping the company focused on both in a more intentional way. Tiffany, as an
0: expert on this topic now, given that your book is releasing and it's going to become a bestseller, I'm sure, from a variety of lists, that's my my gift to you in terms of willing it to happen. My experience has been that most companies are organized fairly similarly. Do you anticipate that people that are listening today that are doing this, that know they need to do it, that want to do it better, does this rest with human resources, people services? Is it a, where do you think the responsibility for employee engagement, and if a company had like a chief, you know, employee engagement experience officer, where do you think that should be aligned to? Have you seen it, and have you seen it done well or not so well? With any clients who can name them or not name them.
1: So it's like you were listening in on our conversations uh, when I was talking to customers. Uh, no, I was with them.
0: Richard and her. We were busy, actually, <laughs> and you know, her past, actually. But go ahead. Sorry.
1: So I would get three questions when I would share this with executives. One was, if it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? Two would be, who owns it? So we'll talk about that. Who owns it? And I, had a fantastic conversation with Liz Wiseman, who I know you've had on the show. And we were discussing this entire research body of work. And it was her who really cautioned me to be careful not to advise companies that this is about a new role, because if you do, it will become a land grab power move. I'm gonna take this over, it's another C-suite role. And once again, as I said a few minutes ago, I was very active in that getting a chief customer experience officer many, many years ago. So I'm aware that if that was the direction it was going to go, that tends to be a heavier lift for people to embrace. So this is not a recommendation that you have an executive now responsible. Although I said no one owns it, it is a role, it is a group, it is a team but more importantly it is a mindset so airbnb is the sort of case study i use in the book where they had a a employee advisory board that was a cross-section of people who had responsibility for these aspects we were just talking about it would be hr it would be it it would be customer experience and probably revenue generation because those four right have impact on the systems, the tools, the processes, the training, et cetera. And when something was going to happen in Airbnb, it would go through this advisory board. The advisory board would go, okay, wait, hold on. That sounds great for the customer, of course, but what's the intended or unintended consequence for our people or our hosts or our broader, right, community? And looking at it through that lens, if people take a pause after reading my book, that instead of just doing something that reduces effort for customer to improve their experience, the, the response to that or the result of that is that we would increase the effort for the employee and reduce their experience, we want to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. If we can keep it more in line then we will have much more engaged, willing, and satisfied employees, which of course results in better customer experience. So that is why the name of the book is Experience Mindset, not Experience Executive, not add a new C-suite role to your lineup. It is really everybody has to make sure that when they make decisions for one of those two groups, those two constituencies, those two stakeholder groups, that there is no, oops, we didn't realize it was going to do this to them. We need to do this, we need to train them, we need to fix the systems. And that's why this mindset shift has to come from everybody, but it has to start at the top.
0: Tiffany, you don't claim to be an expert on necessarily why people quit their jobs or leave organizations. You're not an organizational behaviorist. But I'll bet you have some insight on this question. We hear this adage that people don't quit their jobs, they quit bad bosses and bad cultures. You've talked a lot in the last 20 plus minutes about systems, technologies, processes. Anecdotally or empirically, in your research, did you come to any actionable conclusions that in fact it is too frequently systems or processes or alignment that people fatigue on? They might work for a great person or love the brand or love the customers, but work is just too damn hard. The companies made it so hard, they just cry uncle. Is that true, or is that just one of many components? Did you see an elevation, I guess is my question, in alignment of systems and processes and technologies as a key or contributing reason why people say, I'm done?
1: Yes. (laughs) That was the short answer. But to your point, I, I am not an HR expert or an organizational expert. I am specifically talking about that moment that matters. When an employee touches a customer, could we make that better so that both uh, enjoy right, a better experience? But the management layer here is super important as well. So you are correct. Sometimes people just burn out because it takes a lot to do their job. Like in a call center, do I have to open five applications? Like normally when I'm in a room of executives or you know people and I'm giving a keynote or something and I ask How many of you can do your job in one application all day? Very few raise their hand. But now let's go back to your management question. If an employee tells their manager, listen, it's taking me five minutes to do something, or the other day I was with a a client and they said it took them 20 minutes per agent to do a return of a product, 20 minutes. So if they did 10 a day, that's their day. That's all they're doing is returns. So let's say that is me, and I go to my manager, and I say, hey, listen, it's taking me 20 minutes. I think if we did these three things, I could reduce it in half. And that manager hears what the person says and does nothing with it. Or the company surveys the employees, and they say, I want these things. They're important to me. And then the company does nothing about it, which I had said a few minutes ago, right? They're capturing all this data, and they're doing nothing with it. So what that also does is you ask me a question. I've answered you. And you're not, you don't even have the respect to tell me you're gonna do it or not do it. And if you're going to, great, tell me when. If you're not going to, that's also okay, but tell me why. And so you're correct that sometimes this burnout is systems and processes, but sometimes it's also, like I'm tired of caring enough to tell my manager, my boss, that there are better ways to do things and no one is listening to me. And that's where you have to go, That's why the great resignation should not be a surprise to people, or even quiet quitting. Because they're like, if they don't care, why should I care? And they go try to find some place where they can grow, they can be listened to, and they can show up and do the best they can every single day. Let's talk
0: about the conundrum of efficiency, uh, AI specifically. Uh, One of the roles that I play at Franklin Covey as an advisor is I help to craft and formulate the company's thought leadership and the books we write who writes them, what topics, what publishers, things like that. I I take my strategies to the CEO and he and the board and the executive team decide which they want us to execute. As a result of that, we also hire some outside writers, known often as, you know, writers or ghost writers to help us write content. And recently, I was working with an external ghost writer that was helping formulate some thoughts for a particular project. And he said, you know what, I can run this through Chat GPT and have it all back within 20 minutes. And I was resistant because of intellectual property and how we want to have a, you know, a strong point of view. Well, he did that, and it came back. And he was very proud of it. Very competent writer, by the way. But he ran this whole project through ChatGPT. And I read it, and I said, yeah, it's done like in 20 minutes. This would have taken a human 12 hours, but there's no point of view. There's, it's just milk toast. It's just, it's vanilla. It's all wise and, and it's, it's, it just lacked, it lacked a heart, it lacked a point of view, it lacked a particular um, passion, it had no passion to it. To what extent do you worry about or are you encouraged as companies move fast into efficiency paradigm, efficiency mindset, And start to use things like AI and other tools to help with the employee experience. Is that going to help? Is it going to hurt? What cautions or watch outs do you have for us?
1: I'd say that, you know, I've been saying this for some time now. I am a firm believer in human and tech, not necessarily human alone and not tech alone. There are pieces and parts of, Interactions, if you will, or content production that could be generated by AI. So, you know, we've been doing chat bots for a really long time, right? You show up to someone's customer or to their website and you want a quick answer, you want to find where you could do returns, or I want I want to know where I can do something. And that's very efficient and super effective. It it's a good experience for the customer, and you don't have a human doing this repetitive, redundant, low impact task a thousand times a day. Like I think there's value there. When you're talking about something like what you just said you nailed it you have to have the human and technology combination now had that writer taken that content that he was able to generate in 20 minutes and spent maybe another couple hours on it adding some flavor of more human and examples and having a point of view then that was the human tech combination that was missing in the tech only response that he generated for you right because you could have done that on your own there's sort of no value if someone's not going to touch it and do something more So there's been a bunch of studies now that are really showing that AI can improve productivity on those low-value, mundane, repetitive tasks. When you start moving up complexity, when you start moving up the need for a point of view or thought or a subtlety in description of what has to be layered on top of it, that's where humans can show up. And that's exciting work, it might bring them joy. They feel like they're doing some really great stuff and working with cool technology. But that goes back to what we were just saying around investing in your people. Are they scared to death of AI? Or do you have a way in which you're going to train your people on how to use it, where to use it, why to use it, what the guardrails are for when, right? And that's where people will go, great, now I'm not feeling so insecure, I won't be so resistant that I see my way as a partner with the technology versus being replaced by the technology. Now, will there be some replacement? Yes. But there will also be advancements if people are, by the way, willing to reskill. If half of us have to reskill, according to the World Economic Forum, between now and I think it's 2025, I think that number has dropped a little bit to 46 or 47%. Yet, not everyone is taking advantage. Companies know they need to reskill their people, but they're just not offering ways in which they can do it at a fast enough pace where they're defaulting to, we'll figure out the human side of this later, let's just reduce cost, reduce cost, reduce cost, and implement technology. And I think they will find themselves um, on their back foot to those that do it really well.
0: Tiffany, I want to end on a high note, but I want to address this first. I'm guessing employee experience is more difficult difficult than ever, given the hybrid work experience, virtual environments of teams, pandemic or not, right? I mean, you're now, companies are feeling more confident hiring people that are geographically dispersed, and in many ways, feeling like they're getting as much or more efficiency. Yes, there is a return to work initiative, right? People first companies. What advice would you give to leaders that are wrestling with the fact that they're hearing you, they're buying your book right now on Amazon and they're reading it and they're giving it to their executive team to read, which is where it probably should start. And they're feeling, I don't know what to do because I've got, you know, nine managing directors that are in different states, and I've got 16 general managers who are in different states, and we see them maybe once or twice a year, and it costs a half million dollars to bring them all in. For you get the point, right? It's an expensive process. Any advice you would give leaders on how to build employee experience in the midst of, I'd say, a stabilized or even increasingly hybrid work world?
1: So I used to answer that question pretty quickly. Well, this is the three or four things like that I think you should be doing. And in many ways, I almost feel like I did a disservice in being so fast to answer those questions when I would get them over the course of my you know 17 years of advising companies. Now I tend to go back and go, it's a great question, and I'm Absolutely thrilled you're asking it because that's half the battle like you have to they have to be willing to go I don't actually know the answer or I don't actually know how to make this work because it's worked in a previous time Doesn't mean after a thousand days of something being different and lots of habits changing And then lots of demands from employees changing that I can just go back to the way that it was we're seeing that's not being a very effective strategy So my advice would be I don't know the answer to that question but your employees do. Your employees know the answer to what will help them be most efficient, most effective, most satisfied, right? most willing to go the extra mile for their teammates, for the customers, for their communities, all the things we want and aspire to have as, as companies, especially those that are people-driven. If you ask them, don't ask them 92 questions. Like say, what's the one thing that would make you more productive? What's the one thing that would make you more satisfied at work? What's the one thing that if we stopped doing would be great for you? What's the one thing if we started doing would be great for you? Whatever those one questions are, but make sure you ask and you capture and then you action. So if you think everybody wants to keep working from home or if you think the only way you're gonna be successful is everyone has to come back to the office to work, you are using a bias and a fixed mindset in the sense that you're not willing to be open to other alternatives. Your employees will help you find your way forward, but you have to be courageous enough to ask, to listen, and then to action what it is that they think uh, will work best for them. Now, you can't do everything they ask. Some things may be out of bounds for you, and that's okay. Don't forget to tell them why it doesn't work, and why it doesn't work here, and why it doesn't work here right now. But if you're going to do it, guess what you've just done? You've built trust between you and your people, they now feel like, look, I was asked, I answered, they they listened, and now I feel completely committed to this company because they're right on track with what I expect from where I work. And even though not everything's perfect, I know why we're not doing it and I'm okay with it. So I think that level of communication, ask and answer, right, and vulnerability to really admit you don't know the answer, the, 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 the guidance you're looking for is really within your employee and customer base. Uh, You just have to ask.
0: Tiffany, last question as we end. We've spent a lot of time talking, I have at least, about leaders in the C-suite and the responsibility they have for the employee experience. Let's talk about the vast majority of the workforce, which actually isn't leadership, individual contributors, individual producers. What responsibility do they have in helping to ensure the company creates an experience where they also want to stay?
1: Yeah, this is where uh, it gets a little more difficult. You know, when people hear me speak about the experience mindset and the power behind it, individual contributors go, this isn't really for me. I don't have the ability to affect or effect change at all. Right? I'm an individual contributor. But if you are curious, if you have drive, if you are committed to the company and doing what you do, then I would do what I just suggested the leaders do. I would come up with one or two things that your next one-on-one with your manager or your next team meeting, you bring it up and say, you know what, I tracked my time this week and I realized that I'm spending 20% of my time doing these things and I want to be more productive and I want to hit the goals that you've given for us and our team and me individually. Is there any way we could fix these two things? And you may all of a sudden have the rest of your team go, oh my God, I so agree. Now it's this bottom up wave of ideas by which your team, your group, your division, uh, maybe your collaborative partners, like whatever it might be, has the ability to change their own reality slowly. And guess what happens when that starts happening in one group? Another group might go, hey, hey, what's happening over there? What are they doing? What are they doing so differently that what we're doing? What are you guys doing? And I say, we well, did this. Well, I want to do that. And then as the groundswell starts, right, now those managers are listening. They're avoiding all the things we just talked about, right? People aren't quitting because they're a terrible manager. All of a sudden, the team feels invested in a bettering of their day-to-day. So this is not a top-down exercise. It is a meet-in-the-middle of a top-down and a bottom-up. And the managers are the Achilles heel to making sure they're reporting back up to the leadership team of things that are working and not working and where we've got you know, room for investment. And then they're also working down to make sure that they're communicating appropriately to let people know why we're doing things, what's our you know, goals right now, and how they can help them actually solve what it is that they're trying to accomplish. So everybody can play a role in developing this experience mindset as long as they feel like it won't be ignored. So don't make the mistake as leaders to shut down these ideas, no matter how bad you may think they are. It's all part of a learning journey that everybody's on and trying to find their way forward during this very different time than we've ever had in the last you know, 50 years.
0: You know you've written a superb book when your list of endorsers includes Ram Sharon, Marshall Goldsmith, Liz Wiseman, Keith Ferrazzi, Amy Edmondson, Hort Schultze, and Tom Peters, amongst many others. Tiffany Bova, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. You are the global growth and innovation evangelist at Salesforce and the author of the just released today book, The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. Tiffany, best of success for you. Glad to have you back on. Look forward to having you back on on leadership in the future.
1: Thank you for having me, Scott. Look, it's always a pleasure. You put me to task asking such great questions, so thank you for having me.
0: I appreciate your abundance. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.